Good morning, beloved. I love having the children in the room. So, beloved kids, can you raise your hand? I just want to see where you all are. All right. Scattered around. Awesome. Uh, Here's the thing. I love having you here. There is a puzzle in the packet that you got that has today's bottom line, or like the whole sermon in one sentence, what I want you to take away from today. If you figure that puzzle out by either doing the, the code work to get that, or by just listening to the sermon, which I hope you can do both, If you get that, bring your parents to me after the service, and I will give you a prize, all right? Yeah, all right. Sorry, parents. Sorry, adults. You know, something's just, you lose. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Here's the thing. So kids, listen. Kids, when I was your age, when I was in elementary school, um, I rode the bus to school every day, and I'd ride the bus home from school every day, and it was just this long, awful thing. Like, if you like the bus... Hats off to you, but I did not like the bus. It was just this long ride where we constantly got in trouble, and it just, like, nothing good could ever happen on the bus. And so I despised riding the bus. One day, I got a note sent in with my folder in my backpack for the teacher, and the teacher opens it up, and I was, like, never allowed to read the notes that my parents sent, and I don't even know if I could read at that point, but the note was given to my teacher. The teacher then took that note, and I was informed a little later on in the day, you're going to be a car rider for pickup. And that never happened for me. Like, I always had to ride the bus home. And all of a sudden, I'm told that a car is going to come pick me up. My parents are coming to get me. This is really exciting. This is really special. I've never had the opportunity to go to the car rider line. Like, that's this select elite group that gets to go to this side of the campus while I get sent to this side of the campus. And so I'm all excited. I go through all the school day just like, what's happening? Were we going somewhere? Like, I'm, what's going to happen? I'm just so excited. And I go out there. I'm exploring. This is what the car rider line looks like. It's not as exciting as I thought. But, you know, this is still exciting. What's going to happen? I'm looking like, is it going to be mom? Is it going to be dad? Who's going to pick me up? Why? Where are we going? What's going to happen today? This is so exciting. And just car after car after car, as kid after kid after kid leaves, until suddenly I'm the only kid left. And there are no cars in line. And do you know that feeling? That sinking feeling of like, I was so excited. And now I'm just deeply hurt that I've been forgotten. My parents forgot me. This is supposed to be a special, exciting day. For the first time, I'm getting picked up in a car. I'm not going on the cheese wagon. And instead, I'm just sitting here alone. And the teachers, of course, are like, is your mom or dad usually late? I'm like, I don't know. This has never happened before. (laughs) And so... We're sitting there, and after a while, they're like, well, you have to go wait in the office. So the walk of shame, I go to the office, and now I'm sitting alone in an office with just, like, the scary people in school, in my mind. Like, they're all like, where are your parents? I'm like, I don't know. And they say, so at some point, one of them realized, like, let's find the permission slip. And so they pull out the note that my parents had sent to the teacher. And shame on her, my teacher didn't actually read the whole note. It did not say that I was supposed to be a car writer. And so I have sat in the car rider line with all this excitement thinking, I'm getting picked up in a car today. And then the devastating feeling of like, I've been forgotten today, to now, you didn't read the letter? The cheese wagon already left. Mom and dad are not coming. They won't be home until later this evening if this is a normal day. How do I get home? And so I'm just like, like, it's a sad moment. But let me tell you, before you get a little too sad, It became amazing because one of the administrators had a sports car 
And this was back in the day when they wouldn't get sued like crazy for this. She was like, well, you're going to go for a ride with me. And for the first time in my life, I got to get into a sports car, ride up front because there's only two seats. And she drove me to my house in a sports car. Like, worked out, you know? Yeah. Thank you for clapping. That was pretty awesome. Um, But here's the thing. Nobody likes to be forgotten. Have you ever been forgotten? It hurts. Nobody wants to be forgotten. And kids, um, if you're responding to me, I love that. So we can kind of have some back and forth if you're responding to me because we have one conversation here. So thank you. I know nobody likes to be forgotten. Uh, We're in the middle of a summer series that we're calling Generations. And so we're going really, really fast through the book of Genesis, looking at it, not every verse as we usually would, but looking at it from one generation to the next. What are some big stories that help us to understand some of the history of this planet, of these people known as humans, who we are? So we start with creation, that God created everything good, and then man rebelled. Though we were created good in the image of God, we rebelled against God, and there's this fall. And so now life is hard, there's sin, there's this curse, there's all these bad things, there's pain and suffering and death. And then the population explodes, and then God sees it's all bad, it's all corrupt. He has favor for one guy named Noah, and he walks with him. And so Noah is preserved on a giant boat that we call an ark which is weirdly also the name of a coffin in Hebrew. And so God saves them from judgment. As the world is flooded, there's this flood, they're saved. And so big population goes to small population, and then it goes to big population as the global population explodes again, but then it narrows in on this guy named Abram, who's called out of modern-day Iraq, is what we think, and he becomes Abraham, as you often know him. He has this son named Isaac. Remember the story? They go up on a mountain. He's going to sacrifice his one and only son, but then God provides a ram stuck in a thicket, and this is spared. So this is this beautiful story, but Isaac then has children. He has Jacob, which is what we discussed last week. Jacob becomes Israel as Jacob, who wrestled with men and was just never satisfied with who he was, was deceptive, the usurper, the deceiver, and he wrestles with God. And God says, here's a name change for you. Walk in this. You are one who struggled with man and God and have prevailed. And so now we wrestle onward and Godward. And so this is where we are. We're moving into the next generation from Jacob slash Israel as his name was changed. And this is what it says in Genesis chapter 35. I'll read this really quick to you. It says, Jacob had 12 sons. Wow. Do you have 11 siblings? And these are just the sons. We don't know how many sisters. Jacob had 12 sons. Leah's sons, and this is where it gets weird. You're not supposed to have but one wife, but these are not examples. These are non-examples. Every time in scripture, if you ever wonder, like, why do they have this whole polygamy thing, like, and the, all the multiple wives, and like, what's the deal? There is one God, and you should only have one spouse. Okay, husband and wife? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Every time it shows up, it's easy for us to be like, oh, this is uncomfortable. Like, this is a hero of the faith, and yet he has multiple wives and concubines and all this weird stuff. Every time it shows up, watch what happens. It does not go well. This was not God's design. So Jacob had 12 sons. Here are the wives and their sons. Leah's sons were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Rachel's sons were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Rachel's slave, yes, terrible, Bilhah, were Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Leah's slave, Zilpah, were Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Now, Everyone, if you will turn in your copy of scripture with me to Joseph's story as it picks up in Genesis chapter 37. One of the sons of Jacob is Joseph, and we will focus on Joseph's story today. This is the next generation from Jacob, starting in chapter 37, verse 1, start of the chapter. 
Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. Remember, this is the promised land. These are the family records of Jacob. At 17 years of age, Joseph tended sheep with his brothers. The young man was working with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons because Joseph was a son born to him in his old age, and he made a robe of many colors for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. There's this son, Joseph. He's got 11 brothers. Joseph is favored by dad. And so um, his story starts off, your introduction to this sibling group is that one of the brothers tells, he tattles on some other brothers. And so they can't stand him. Like, here's the thing, tattling on your sibling does not usually make them like you more. Usually makes them like you less. It doesn't mean like you should tell your parents when it's appropriate and needed for the safety and all that stuff, but it tends to not make things good between you and your siblings when you tattle on them. What makes it even worse is that Jacob loves Joseph more than his brothers. Like, dad makes a special technicolor coat for Joseph. Like, this is rad. This is an awesome jacket. And Joseph, of course, like, I'm gonna wear this thing everywhere. Hey, guys, remember this? Dad made me this. It's awesome. It's way cooler than mine. But dad makes him this special thing. He gets preferential treatment. And so, of course, imagine if your parents treated you vastly different than your siblings, you're probably like, that's not cool. That is really not cool. And this happens here. And so they hate their brother. They do not like Joseph. Oh, look what happens. Verse five. Then Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. There we were, binding sheaves of grain in the field. Very exciting stuff, right? Suddenly, my sheaf stood up, and your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And they all turn and look at him. Are you really going to reign over us? His brothers asked him. They're trying to interpret this dream. Your sheaf stands up. Our sheaves all get around you in a circle and bow down to Joseph. Are you really going to reign over us? His brothers asked him. Are you really going to rule us? So they hated him even more because of his dream and what he said. Joseph is not winning points with his brothers. Why, why would he share this dream? Like, it's a real question. Like, what's going through Joseph's mind where he has this dream and he thinks, I should tell my brothers that hate me. Oh. And if that's not absurd enough yet, watch what happens now, verse nine. Then he had another dream and told it to his brothers. Look, he said, I had another dream. And this time, the sun, moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. There's something in his subconscious about people bowing down to him. He told his father and brothers, and his father rebuked him. What kind of dream is this that you have had, he said. Am I and your mother and your brothers really going to come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. He is not doing himself any favors by sharing these dreams. But there's something about these dreams that Joseph feels like, I gotta share this. Like, if he's like me, I have a hyperactive imagination. I had night terrors growing up. Every single time to this day that I have ever fallen asleep, I have had some kind of a dream. Just sleeping is synonymous with dreaming for me. It can be quite scary and annoying at times. You know what happens most of the time? Oh, that was silly, and I forget it. Sometimes I wake up and I have to spend 20 minutes figuring out, did that happen? <laughs> oh, no. 
I hope that didn't happen. You like slowly come to mind, like, okay, the gap between my head and just reality, like, all right, this, I'm okay. But most of the time, nobody needs to know about that. Joseph had dreams all the time, like any of us, and yet he decides with these dreams, I should share this. Already knowing his brothers don't like him, he has preferable treatment from dad, but he thinks, you know, I should tell them about this dream I had where they all started bowing down to me. Yeah. And then he has another one. I should definitely tell them about this. Moon, sun, all these stars, yeah, bowing down to me. He keeps doing this, and they can't stand it. They're jealous of him. And even his father, Jacob, rebukes him. You really think that mom and I are going to bow down to you and all your brothers? But Jacob also knows, because he's had dreams, remember his story, there may be something to this. So he holds on to this. He keeps the matter in mind. And now, to summarize what happens next, as they go through, there comes a point where Joseph is at home, remember, preferable treatment. His brothers are out tending sheep and stuff. They're out. It's probably hard work, whereas Joseph gets to stay home. Like, it's pretty chill around here. But dad, Jacob, tells Joseph at one point, hey, I need you to go over and check on your brothers. Just tell me how the flocks are doing. Tell me how your brothers are. Just check in with them. Come back and report to me. How are things going? And so Joseph's like, all right, I got it. So he takes off, and he's going. He's trying to find them. He struggles to find them at first. Somebody helps him find them. And as he's coming, his brothers see him off in the distance. They have not yet talked, but they see him coming. They're like, hey, guys, here comes that dream expert. Here comes Joseph. Let's kill him. Whoa, 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 pump the brakes. Yeah, let's get rid of him. We'll kill him and throw him into a pit. Nobody will know where he is. Let's, let's see how this dream expert makes his dreams come true if he's dead. And so they come up with this scheme, but one of the brothers, Reuben, who's already in trouble for some things, but he's trying to kind of get back in the good graces of dad, but he's like, you know, hey, let's, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in the pit. And, and then walk away like, this is our brother, flesh and blood after all. I'm like, okay, let's throw him in the pit. So he comes up, he'll ambush Joseph. They throw him in a pit. He's stuck in a pit. He can't get out. And they're like, we're gonna leave him here. He'll die of starvation or something. Like animal come, I don't know what, but like he's done. Dream, dreams will not come true. But they're eating lunch and they look up from lunch and there's a caravan of Midianites or Ishmaelites. It's the same thing, but they're coming through. And like, you know what? Actually, we could benefit from this. We could benefit from this. Let's sell him. So for 20 pieces of silver, they drag Joseph out of the pit and they sell him now as a slave to these people who are on their way to Egypt. They're on their way to Egypt to do business. And like, well, business is booming because now we've got a slave we can sell. We got a good deal on him for 20 pieces of silver. Strong young man. And so here we are. Joseph has now been sold into slavery. He then is sold by these people, the Midianites. He's sold by them to Potiphar, who is a ranking official. He's the captain of the guard under Pharaoh himself. So this is a very high-ranking individual in Egypt, in this kingdom. And now Joseph is owned by him. And do you see the roller coaster ride for Joseph? The Joseph goes from having these dreams at the beginning, he's like, that's pretty awesome. My whole family is going to bow down to me. I'm going to reign and rule over them. Things are looking up for my future. This is pretty exciting because they don't like me already, but now they're really not going to like this. But I got to share this. Oh, things are looking up. And then dad rebukes him. Oh, that kind of stung. Maybe I shouldn't have shared that. Things are going down. And then he's betrayed by his own brothers. They're going down further. He's thrown into a pit. He's literally down even further. And then they take him out and they sell him to Potiphar where he geographically goes down to Egypt. 
This is up and then down, 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 down. This roller coaster ride where things are just terrible. And then we pick up, turn to chapter 39. Joseph's story resumes. Chapter 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken to Egypt. An Egyptian named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, serving in the household of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made everything he did successful, Joseph found favor with his master and became his personal attendant. Potiphar also put him in charge of his household and placed all that he owned under his authority. From the time that he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house because of Joseph. The Lord's blessing was on all that he owned in his house and in his fields. He left all that he owned under Joseph's authority. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. So things were not looking good. Dreams are up, and then it's just crash, nosedive, down, 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 down. He's sold as a slave, and then he's the property of Potiphar, high-ranking captain of the guard of Egypt. But as he's now here, owned by another human being, which is so awful. Potiphar realizes everything that this guy does, it's done really well. And you imagine him like, well, you're in charge of this, okay? Slave? Wow, he's doing really good with that. Hey, you're also in charge of this. That's going really well. You're also in charge of this. And so slowly, now, Joseph, who was a slave, is living the life. Like, Potiphar is like, things are going so well, the only thing that I worry about every day is what I'm going to eat because Joseph is just handling the rest of it. And Joseph is like, I can pretty much do what I want. This is pretty awesome. So the roller coaster has gone up. It's amazing. Life is going well. There's this blessing and this rise to prominence. And you know what happens? Joseph was well-built and handsome. Meaning the ladies would be like, look at that guy. (laughs) Potiphar's wife felt the same way. Potiphar's wife wanted Joseph to do something that Joseph should not do with Potiphar's wife. She wanted to do something bad. And so Joseph is like, no, 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 not doing that. And so take a step back. And she's like, yes, we are. And no, we're not. Yes, we are. No, we're not. Until one day, Joseph has to run away. And Potiphar's wife is so upset by this that she's like, you know what? I'll just lie about it. I'm going to say he did something terrible. And so she lies about Joseph. And Potiphar comes back. She tells him this lie that Joseph did something awful. And Potiphar's like, so he takes Joseph and he throws him in Pharaoh's prison. And so Joseph, again, this roller coaster ride, it's up, it's down, it's up. And now it's crashing back down as Joseph now finds himself from his rise to prominence back crashing down. He's in the prison of the Pharaoh here in Egypt in prison. What a tragedy. Now we pick up verse 21 of chapter 39. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. He granted him favor with the prison warden. The warden put all the prisoners who were, with, who were in the prison under Joseph's authority, and he was responsible for everything that was done there. The warden did not bother with anything under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him, and the Lord made everything that he did successful. Just like at Potiphar's house. Things are going down, going down. He's sold as a slave, but then Potiphar's like, everything this guy does is awesome. Here, have more, have more, have more. And then, oh, crash. Now you're in prison. But now that Joseph is in prison in Egypt, Pharaoh's own prison, the prison guard is like, everything this guy does is awesome. 
And so again, Joseph is rising to prominence. He's now in control of a lot of things. So as a prisoner, Joseph is in charge of a lot of things. Like what a weird roller coaster ride, just up and down and all this stuff. And then comes a point. Joseph in prison, but life is actually going pretty well as a prisoner. Things are pretty great for him. But he's still in prison. He doesn't want to be in prison. Something bad happens where the chief cupbearer and the chief baker of Pharaoh himself get thrown into prison. Because you know what a cupbearer is? If you watched like old medieval kind of movies, like castles and knights and princesses, kings and queens and all this stuff. So the cupbearer is the guy who literally would bear or hold the cup for the king. And often they would have to take a sip of it to just test it. Like, not just is this going to be really tasty or awful, but is there poison in this? Because we want to protect the king at all costs, protect Pharaoh at all costs, so the cupbearer would be personally responsible for making sure that the king is not poisoned. This has to be someone that is deeply trusted. They have access to the king on the regular. And so here's the cupbearer. He's done something to offend the king. The king's like, to prison you go. And then the chief baker, the guy in charge of all of his birthday cakes, and cakes every day, because every day is the birthday for the pharaoh, he's like, you did something awful, to prison you go. And so the chief cupbearer and the chief baker are thrown into prison. Bad news for them. Joseph is assigned to be their personal attendant because Joseph does everything so well. These are really, really prominent guys in the kingdom but they've been thrown in jail, but Joseph, you take care of them. They fall asleep one night. They fall asleep, and they have dreams. They have these weird dreams. They wake up in the morning, and they're deeply disturbed by them. Joseph comes walking up. You guys look sad. What's going on? What's wrong? Like, well, we had these dreams. They're really bothering us, but we don't know how to have an interpretation. Joseph is like, interpretations belong to God. Tell me about your dreams. And so they tell him about their dreams and Joseph tells them an interpretation for the cupbearer and the baker. He tells them what their dreams mean. And in short, it means this. Cupbearer, you're actually gonna hold the cup of the king again. You're gonna get freed from this. You're gonna be restored to your relationship with Pharaoh. Things are gonna go really well for you. Baker, not so much. In three days, actually, you're gonna die. This is scary, bad news. And guess what happens? As things are looking up, Joseph provides an interpretation and he's probably thinking of his own dreams. What about my dreams? But now maybe with their dreams, if their dreams come true, my dreams will come true. I'm waiting for that day. My brothers, my mother and father, they're gonna bow down to me. But Joseph makes this plea, probably with his own dreams in mind. This is what it says in 14 to 15. It says, but when all goes well for you, Remember that I was with you. You hear that? Remember that I was with you. Please show kindness to me by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. For I was kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews and even here I have done nothing that they should put me in the dungeon. Prisoners' dreams, interpretations. It's up, up, don't forget me. Please, don't forget me. But then we get to verse 23. They get out. The chief cupbearer is restored to his position. The baker is executed. He dies. The dreams and their interpretation come true. Joseph, parting words. When all goes well for you, cupbearer, remember that I was with you. Verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. He forgot them. Joseph was forgotten. 
Again, the roller coaster ride. It's up, dreams, it's exciting, a future for me. Down, he's betrayed, he's sold into slavery. He's up, hey, things are going really well. He's betrayed again, down, he's thrown into prison. Up, things are going really well. And then down, he's forgotten. Nobody likes to be forgotten. And so in this massive roller coaster ride of ups and downs, we have to ask two questions. Kids, there are two questions that I want to answer today. So let's ask these questions together. The first question, who is in control? In this question, yes, you're so far ahead of me. Thank you. Who is in control? If things can go so poorly and then so well and then so poorly, who is actually in control? Kids, you know who this is? Yes, it's Unicorse. If you have not watched Bluey, shame on you. I'm talking to every one of you in the room. Shame on you. It's amazing. That's good stuff. And they're only like five minutes long, which is my favorite thing about it. So Unicorse shows up twice in this show. The first time he shows up, he introduces himself. This is a bit offensive. But his catchphrase is, and why should I care? He's just this really awful, just terribly, just just awful being, but he's a puppet that dad controls, right? And so he shows up and he's just terrible behavior. He's jumping in, interrupting mom. They're trying to read a story and he's like spoiling the book and all this stuff. He's just back and forth. It's just all this stuff. And then the second time he shows up, he shows up in a moment where they want something. They're not sure how to do something. And Unicorn shows up. The kids are excited. Oh, Unicorn is back. And then Unicorn decides he wants something, namely mom. He's like, but mom is grossed out by him. So he has to go through this whole change of everything where he's got to clean himself up, stop being so disrespectful and all this stuff. And he shows up. He makes his pass at mom. And what does he do? He eats a tick off his own body in front of mom. And mom's like, oh, disgusting. And so it ruins everything. And then the kids are mad. They're upset. Unicorse has failed to capture the heart of mom. And as dad is expecting them to rebuke Unicorse, they say, it's not your fault, Unicorse. It's his fault. I'm like, what? How is it his fault? And so dad and Unicorse are going back and forth. This is funny. They think it's your fault. What did I do? I didn't eat the tick. I'm like, you're a puppet, Unicorse. And you have this dramatic moment of revealing that Unicorse is like, I'm not a puppet. This is crazy. And they're trying to prove it and all this stuff. And they're like, have you ever looked at your legs? And he looks down and he has this moment. He's like, my whole life is a lie. <laughs> As he realizes he is a puppet. Unicorse is just a puppet. And then it launches into this whole thing where there's all these back and forth. So like he's so depressed and everything, but mom's like, oh, it's okay and all this stuff. And they go back and forth. But Bluey, as, he's being, or as she is being laid to bed at night, Dad has Unicorse again. And Unicorse, after discovering he's just a puppet, and there's all this banter back and forth, Unicorse puts Bluey to bed that night saying, how do you know you're not a puppet? And then the fourth wall breaks as the camera pans out from the animation and you see the artist's hand as he animates Bluey sleeping and coming back awake. And then it zooms back in, and you're back into the play, into this animation. And Bluey, waking up, sits up as the artist has just rendered all of this and says, wow, that was a wild dream. And you're left wondering, who's in control? How much of life is just totally out of control? And how much of life is actually under the sovereign control of someone? And so when we say, who is in control? As you said, God is. God is absolutely in control. Even when things seem out of control, you can rest and know that God is still in control. 
There is a God who is that powerful that even when things are so awful and the roller coaster ride is up and down and all this stuff, we can trust that God is still in control. What he has promised will come about. God is in control, even when it looks like everything is out of control. To paraphrase a pastor I once heard, Scripture speaks of God's sovereignty, meaning his power and control over all things, to relieve man of anxiety, not responsibility. That we have this weird tension of if, if God is really in control, are we all just puppets? You got a puppet in your pack? Are we all just puppets playing this game as God kind of dances with the strings? And the answer from Scripture is no. We live in this wonderful tension of there's a God who is absolutely sovereignly in control of all things, and yet we have genuine responsibility in this. We make real decisions. And so we hear of God's sovereignty, the fact that he is in control, and that should relieve us of anxiety to know I can sleep at night. This is why the psalmist would remember and say over and over again, the Lord gives sleep to those that he loves, that I can go to sleep at night and calm down, and I can engage in a Sabbath practice where I stop working, I cease working, and I can be still because I know that he is fighting for me, that he is still at work even when I am at rest, that there is a God who is still in control, and so I can rest. I can be calm knowing that he is still in control, and yet I have genuine responsibility in this, that I am to be upright and follow in the Lord's commands, that I should fight to put my sin to death and know that God is in control and this is all moving to a decided end. While we make real choices and all these things, we have real responsibility in this. We have the assurance of knowing the end has been written. It's as good as done. And we get to live in the tension of the already, not yet, that the battle has been won. And yet, we're still learning this. That he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion on that day that God is in control is such a reassurance to us. So when we're in Joseph's place of things are looking well and they're not looking well, when you're in that valley, when you're in a dark place, when it seems like nothing is going right, you have the assurance of knowing God is still on the throne. He is still in control. What a reassurance to us. So question one, who is in control? God. God is in control. And then question two, because of the answer to question one, if God is in control, question two is, does the one in control forget about us? Because that's the hurt, right? That we don't want to be forgotten. Joseph was forgotten. We don't want to be forgotten. When we're in that low place, when we're in prison, when we're in the pit, wherever we are, whatever the circumstances in your life, we're all going to have them. In the dark times, we can ask the question, who's in control? Okay, God is in control. But has God forgotten me? Has God forgotten me? Does the one in control forget about us? Think about this. You remember the cupbearer. And Joseph is like, here's an interpretation for your dream. This is really exciting, man. I've got good news for you. Not so good news for you, baker, but good news for you, cupbearer. You're going to be freed. You're going to be restored to your position, your relationship with the Pharaoh. It's going to be good. Hey, man, don't forget about me. Don't forget about me when it goes well for you. And what does the cupbearer do? He forgets. He forgets. He's back in a good place. Things are going well for him, and he forgets about Joseph. How absurd that Joseph would be forgotten, the one who gave good news to the guy who lived out the good news. He forgot about him. In the same way, we get good news. That's what gospel means, that the gospel is God has come for us to rescue us from our enslavement, from our prison to sin and death and shame, and God rescues us from that. 
How absurd would it be for us to forget the one who gives us that good news, who brings life and freedom for us? We can't forget this. We cannot forget this good news. We know that we are not forgotten by remembering our Savior who came for us. Because this is the gospel, that Christ was also betrayed for a bunch of pieces of silver, just like Joseph was. Christ was ignored. Christ was thrown into enslavement. He was put in prison. He had a mockery of a trial. There were no charges that would actually stand against him, just like Joseph. And yet, he went all the way to death. Why? Because God's love was revealed among us in this way, that God sent forth his son that we would have eternal life. This is the way we know that God loves us. This is the way we know that God has not forgotten us. That God came for us. He did not forget us. He will not forget you. He will not forsake you. He will not abandon you. This is the gospel, the good news. There's a God who has come to us. Jesus is his name. He lived a sinless life. And then he died the death that you and I deserve on a cross so that our debt could be paid, so that we would no longer have a debt. This, this cost, the cost of sin is death. We no longer have to face that, the penalty. He has come to pay that debt for us. And he calls us to turn from our sin, confess you are a sinner, but confess him to be Lord, that he is mighty to save. And he has accomplished that on a cross and then in an empty tomb because he conquered even death itself. He rose again victorious. And he's alive forevermore, so you must believe that God raised him from the dead. You confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. He's the God who did not forget me. He came for me to save me. And so I'm trusting him. I'm gonna believe in him. And he's alive so that I can be alive with him forever. Even though he died, he is alive. He remembers me. He still remembers me. That has to be the foundation that we build our lives on. This good news, this gospel, this is the sure foundation. This is the foundation that will hold because we will all go through seasons like Joseph of ups and downs and wondering who's in control. If God's in control, has he forgotten me? How long, O oh Lord, will you hide your face from me? We can be honest about those things, but we must remember the foundation is God's love has been proven. It's been revealed to us in the gospel. He loves me. He has not forgotten me. He's with me. So what is your foundation? And is it going to hold? In the highs and in the lows, will it hold? Here's the thing. The phrase, the God of Abraham, Jacob and Isaac, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in order, is repeated over and over in the scriptures. Like, how do you identify the one true God, Yahweh? He often associates himself with these individuals. Three generations, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Israel would be reminded of the name of God, and often he would say, this is who I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Like, ugh. Do you think Joseph ever, like, couldn't you like extend that one more generation? One more gen The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. That'd feel nice, right? Or the fact that God in Theophanies would speak directly to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Like Jacob even like wrestled with him. Don't you think Joseph would be like, yeah, that'd be kind of nice. Like I've just had these weird dreams that had to be interpreted. Don't you think Joseph would be like, oh, just if I could be in that generation. But he wasn't. Instead, you see a faithfulness in Joseph that in the ups and the downs, like when he's betrayed and Potiphar's wife wants him to do something bad, he, he says, not what we would naturally think, like how could I do this to Potiphar? But he says, how could I sin against God? That it was always Godward. And then when he's in prison, 
Again, things are going terribly. And as he talks to these two men who had dreams, what does he say? Well, don't interpretations belong to God? That again, he would go Godward. He would remember God. This was his foundation. There's a God who has not abandoned me. Even if my name doesn't get put into the script for how God's going to be repeatedly referenced, Joseph would remember God. Hold to what you know is true through all the ups and downs. We can trust in generations prior and the way that God has revealed them. That here's the thing, kids, look at me really quick. It's not enough for just your parents to believe. You have to believe. And so you explore what your parents teach you about who God is. But then it has to become personal for you. That you can know God like prior generations. You can believe you can have faith like them. So remember God through all things because bottom line, here it is, kids, you want the prize? God has not forgotten you. God has not forgotten you. I'm gonna leave it on the screen for a little while, but God has not forgotten you. As I close, hear this in the words of the prophet Isaiah as God spoke through him. Zion says, the Lord has abandoned me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child or lack compassion for the child of her womb? Even if these forget, yet I will not forget you. Look, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. We look at our hands a lot because we use them to do things. God says, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. He will not forget us. If you want to remember something, you put a reminder on your hand because you're going to see it a lot. You know what's on the palm of Jesus' hand? Scars as proof of his love for you. He will not forget you. And he even says, I hold you in the palm of my hand and no one can take you from it. God will not forget you. Through all the ups and downs, there's a God who will always remember us. He holds us in his hands. So can you believe this good news? And will you share it? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you would send your son And Jesus, we thank you that you would come in obedience and humility to die for us. And Spirit, we praise you and thank you that you're with us still, reminding us of what is true and leading and guiding us in this life, that your spirit, your spirit would testify with our spirit that we are sons. Thank you for not forgetting us, for being with us, for being in control and that being our good. So we love you and we pray this in the name of Jesus who makes it possible by his blood.